Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Knife's Critical Care Session as we tackle renal dysfunction in the surgical ICU. We've got Brittany Bankhild Kendall, Ryan Dumas, and I'm Caroline Park. Our team is going to discuss the ins and outs and the implications of dialysis therapy in the ICU. So this is the overall topic, renal dysfunction, and uh, we'll cover a couple of uh, reasons why this episode is important and relevant for you all. Thanks for that introduction, Caroline. Uh, so really, the goal in the next 25 to 30 minutes is to discuss renal replacement therapy in the ICU. Now, that sounds very daunting, and that's certainly something that an entire um, class can be uh, discussed and, and topic that is really uh, quite expansive. But we're going to talk about venous modalities and CRT. Uh, we're not going to touch on a IHD, on scuff, or slow, uh, slow efficiency dialysis. Um, well, that's kind of beyond the scope of the discussion. Uh, what we are going to do, though, is focus on some literature, uh, specifically two of the newest trials uh, that really look at timing of initiation in dialysis, because that remains uh, probably the most controversial, controversial thing in our critical care patients that we take up is when do we pull the trigger and start dialysis. Um, and so uh, with that, we're also going to throw in some debates and talk about our different variations in practice uh, between uh, Drs. Park and, and Drs. Bank and Kellen and I. So uh, let's start off with the case. Yeah. All right. So let's say there's a 65-year-old female, and we all know this patient. So she comes in. She's got a pest medical history of hypertension, diabetes. She comes into the ED hypotensive. She's got a leukocytosis on labs and peritonitis on exam. She gets her antibiotics and her blood pressure response to that fluid bolus. And then she's taken to the operating room. In the operating room, you find a Hinchy 3 diverticulitis. She gets her sigmoid resection, her new primary anastomosis, and a diverting loop ileostomy. By the end of the case, she's requiring both norepinephrine and vasopressin. She's been oliguric throughout the case in your discussions with anesthesia. You take her back to the ICU. She's still in the ventilator. Her post-op labs show that she's now acidotic. Her white count's unchanged. And now her creatinine has doubled from pre-op. She's only got three cc's of urine in the bag. So how are we going to manage this patient and should we all be managing this patient the same? Great. So that is a great segue into what the learning objectives will be for this particular session. So priorities are going to be understanding the indications of renal replacement therapy. Dr. Ben Kilkendall is going to go over that. Understanding the different modalities of CRT. Dr. Dumas will really dive into that section. And then, of course, we want to discuss two uh, seminal articles um, regarding timing of renal replacement therapy in critical ill patients. One is specifically on timing, and the second one is going to be on timing, but in patients with septic shock. Awesome. So we'll move into kind of first things first, and that's understanding the indications for dialysis. And this is really something, if you ever do an IC rotation um, or you are an intensivist, you know that we talk about it all the time, very frequently. Um, and 
really knowing these AEIOUs, we call them, of acute kidney injury and indications for dialysis are key. So uh, just to recap, remember A is for acidosis. Um, E is going to be for your electrolyte abnormalities. And usually this is going to be potassium and phosphorus when we're talking about uh, these acute kidney injury patients. Um, I is going to be for intoxicants or intoxications. We don't see that as much in the ICU and in the surgical ICU, uh, but it's certainly one to remember. Um, O is going to be for overload, so fluid overload. Um, And a lot of times in our patients, the first manifestation of this uh, is going to be from a respiratory standpoint. So they'll either develop a new acute respiratory failure, or if they're already on the ventilator, you'll see worsening vent requirements. And then U is for uremia. Um, And you want to think about this both objectively from the number that you're seeing creep up on your lab work every day, um, but then also kind of subjectively and evaluating the patient uh, in front of you and seeing how they tolerate even maybe a lower BUN um, and and thinking about in in your decision for whether or not to do dialysis. So uh, what modalities are we really talking about here? Um, I think the term CRT is an umbrella term. Uh, and really, when you dive into the into the weeds of it a little bit more, there's there's three main uh, modalities. And so, um, you know, the, the CRT machine itself can be kind of uh, daunting and certainly uh, really second only to the ventilator can cause a lot of angst amongst trainees. So uh, what I want you guys to remember is uh, CVH, which is uh, hemofiltration, CVHD, which is hemodialysis, and CVHDF, which is hemodialfiltration. And so we're going to talk briefly about the two physics principles on which uh, these rely. So um, hemofiltration uses convection. So convection works on the principle of pressure across the semipermeable membrane that um, accommodates certain size particles or ions and molecules to, tra- to, to cross the membrane. So certain things of certain size will cross, other bigger things like albumin, for example, will not. And so the patient is dialyzed uh, like that, and then replacement fluid is used to tweak the concentration of electrolytes in the patient's um, blood that's returning to the patient. Repla- replacement fluid can both be used pre-filter and post-filter. So that's the, fil- the physics principle of convection. Hemodialysis uses and relies on the physics principle of diffusion. So a dialysate, and that's those bags you see hanging down on the, the Prismaflex machines, is, uh, is ran counter-current to the patient's blood. And so the reason why the dialysate is around countercurrent is because the whole idea is to increase the diffusion gradient, which is the principle that we're uh, relying on to dialyze the patient. And that's going to be through osmosis and diffusion. Uh, molecules are going to diffuse across areas from high to low concentration. So for example, for a patient with a potassium of eight, you might put them on a zero K bath and that'll dialyze off the potassium very high. So this is what a circuit looks like. Um, or what it would look like. Um, so really for chemofiltration, we're gonna use replacement fluid. And we're gonna add replacement fluid to increase the osmotic pressure. And the machine is gonna draw and create a negative pressure across the filter, which is gonna help um, dialyze the patient. And then the, um, uh, the, di- the nurse is gonna dialyze in how much replacement fluid we're gonna use, uh, excuse me, dial in, and then we're gonna use to, uh, to tweak the patient's electrolytes uh, on post-filter. Uh, and then HD is going to use a dialysate. And so the dialysate runs counter current, uh, as I just described. And so that's going to be uh, a pretty st- straightforward setup. And that's the setup that, for example, people uh, use in, in hemodialysis. And then the final configuration can be all uh, both modalities combined. And now, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, also, I'm always or frequently asked, 
what, why we use a certain uh, modality over another. And that, quite frankly, in my experience, tends to be institutional dependent. Um, so there's certainly some institutions which, which only do hemofiltration. Uh, where, where I practice, we do hemodiafiltration. And so that's a combination of both. So we're gonna, we're, we run a dialysate, a countercurrent, and then we also use uh, a replacement fluid uh, to adjust electrolytes uh, and um, to tweak the transmembrane pressure across the dialysis filter. All right, so today we're really going to be getting into um, the specifics and the details of two really more recent journal articles. But, you know, just in thinking about things that we need to be thinking about in our analysis of whether or not a patient needs to be dialyzed, uh, dialyzed is, first of all, what type of modality. And um, you've got your intermittent hemodialysis, your continuous renal replacement therapy, and then, um, like Ryan talked about, your intensity of dialysis and the flow rates that you're using and the patient's ability to tolerate that. And then really the thing that um, in the surgical ICU we debate the most is going to be the timing of initiation and whether doing this early for our patients is going to lead to better outcomes uh, or if we should stave it off, if we should wait. Um, and that's really where a lot of uh, literature is, is evolved around. Um, there's been a few uh, in the past uh, that have come out, but really the ones we're going to talk about today are the Ideal ICU trial from 2018, and then really recently the START AKI trial um, in 2020. That is a great segue. Thank you, Dr. Benko Kendall, um, to discuss acute kidney injury and septic shock. I know Dr. Dumas is going to dive into the population specifically just acute kidney injury. Um, so let's take a closer look at the ideal ICU trial again um, from 2018 from the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at specifically outcomes after early versus late or delayed initiation of dialysis. Now your questions, well, what is early? And early is actually fairly early. It's within 12 hours. And then delayed is within 48 hours. So still within a decent time frame. Um, so this trial was really performed because of the conflicting results of the Elaine and um, Akiki trial. Now, before we dive into the meat of the study, I think it's really important to understand the criteria for which these patients meet. And these authors specifically use the rifle criteria versus the Kadiga criteria, which was used in subsequent studies. The rifle criteria stands for risk, injury, failure, loss, and adrenal disease. And the category that we're most interested in for this study is the failure, F. So in the rifle criteria, we look at patients who are either non-oliguric or oliguric. Are they making urine? Are they not making urine? The patients that are not making urine, um, you're looking at creatinine or GFR decreases of greater than 75%, a serum creatinine that's tripled um, versus an oliguria looking for urine output of less than 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour for 12 hours, or they've simply been in urine for 12 hours. So the inclusion criteria for the ideal ICU trial, patients had to be greater than or equal to 18 years of age, needed to be admitted to the ICU within the early phase of septic shock. So within 48 hours after start of vasopressors, plus they needed to have acute kidney injury, meeting at least one of three of the criteria that I just mentioned within the failure stage. So keeping that in mind, let's kind of talk about, you know, these patients. So they screened um, almost 3,600 patients, included 1,728, and they randomized 488, uh, 219 into early and 149 of them, which went into the delayed group. Now, again, keeping in mind the uh, timing of uh, initiation of therapy. So, you know, in terms of thinking about this study and is this patient, you know, generalizable to my unit, 
I'd say that these patients were very well uh, matched um, in terms of comorbidities, SOFA score, and organ support. The um, outcomes that they were looking at specifically were 90 days and death at um, 180 days. So this is for mortality specifically. Um, and I think the really interesting thing is, is that, you know, there really wasn't a huge difference um, in mortality. The mortality was 58% in the early strategy group and 54% in the delayed strategy group. So really wasn't much of a difference. Um, you know, and the other things that we're going to have to also think about are the secondary outcomes, right? So for patients who did not receive dialysis, what are the possible consequences? So we're looking at, you know, patients who may have a greater length of stay, they're on a LASIK strip. Um, did they need uh, mechanical ventilation? So they were they so fluid overloaded that they needed to be intubated for longer. And then um, were they so acidotic, needed more vasosuppressor support? So those are the secondary outcomes that they were interested in looking at as well. Um, and then I would say in terms of adverse events, so for patients who did not, or they received later dialysis, there are a couple of things that I would be concerned about as a clinician. Number one, being metabolic acidosis. Um, was there any difference in that in hyperkalemia and fluid overload? And, you know, I think hyperkalemia, there was certainly an increase in that and that was significant. Um, but for the most part, there really wasn't much of a difference. So for limitations, Dr. Ben Kendall, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, they do, the authors identify uh, themselves that using the rifle classification system here is really their first limitation that really it might not be the best or the most sensitive classification system that could be used. So that in and of itself is going to be their first limitation. Um, also noteworthy and something that I think definitely stuck out to me was their recognition that the difference between early and late renal replacement therapy was really 48 hours, which is really not a long time when you're talking about these really critically ill sick patients in the ICU who were there sometimes weeks, um, 48 hours isn't really a long time. Uh, and is that really a sufficient amount of time to distinguish a difference between those two groups? And overall, you know, the authors kind of say they felt obligated from an ethical standpoint in this study, particularly to not withhold dialysis any longer than two days at the risk of a patient not receiving dialysis who maybe would have needed it, um, which is fair. So perhaps now, as we will see in the next uh, article with two large studies like we're looking at today, um, maybe this will be in the works in the future to make that divide a little bit larger to see if there you know, really is a difference. Hi, all Behind the Knife listeners. It's Scott here, and I want to share a quick message from our sponsor of today's show, Amazon Pharmacy. Now, many of us listening to BTK are taking multiple medications or supplements to stay healthy and vital. Chances are that every one of our listeners uses Amazon, whether it's for buying handy wipes or even parts for your car. Now, Amazon Pharmacy gives you a great sense of relief because you have an easier way of taking care of the ordering, the organization, and the delivery of your important medications because they come right to your door. It's super easy, like most things that Amazon does. You can have your doctor send your next prescription to Amazon Pharmacy, and then Amazon Pharmacy sorts out your medications by day and time for your ease in taking them. They also will help you with other pharmacy items like inhalers. You can use your own insurance. Amazon Pharmacy works with most insurance plans nationwide. Amazon Prime members get free two-day delivery and save on prescription medications when paying without insurance. Signing up is really easy, yet it's thorough. They'll ask you about your medical history, any medications, vitamins, supplements you may be taking. They'll even go over things such as allergies. Then Amazon Pharmacy reaches out to the primary care doc to coordinate. Like many of you, I use Amazon all the time, and we're familiar with Amazon. 
I love how easy it is, how they give you updates. It just has that sense of familiarity. Now you can have that same sense with Amazon Pharmacy. It's one less errand to run, one less line to wait in, and the medications arrive securely and safely at your doorstep. You can even use your flexible savings account or a health savings account, and you can get additional savings. Amazon Pharmacy will even help you shop for the best price on medications. They will transfer your existing prescriptions and work with your insurance and prescriber directly. Now, this is for customers who are 18 years or older, and they do provide you with 24-7 support to even speak with a pharmacist. It's Amazon. It's easy. I use it all the time. I live with my 90-plus-year-old mother-in-law, and I'm going to start using Amazon Pharmacy. Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medications when not using insurance with medication as low as $1 a month. Plus, again, like I said before, free two-day delivery. So learn more at Amazon.com slash BTK. That's Amazon.com slash BTK. Now, let Amazon Pharmacy help you dominate the day. Now back to the show. Let's talk about the START AKI trial. So the backdrop to these trials, in my opinion, or my the way I interpret the literature, is the in 2016, the Elaine trial came out and the Akiki trial came out. And they were the first of their kind. And they had conflicting results. The Akiki trial said that there was no difference. And the Elaine trial said that there was a difference in mortality with early, early dialysis. They both had problems. The biggest one was the Elaine trial was a single center uh, and small and not probably readily applicable to many uh, different kinds of centers. Um, and there was multiple other issues, but essentially they had two conflicting results. So which prompted the ideal ICU trial and the start AKI trial. Now the ideal ICU trial, as Dr. Parker's mentioned, they randomized less than 300 patients in each arm. Um, so still a relatively small trial. The start AKI trial is a large patient population mixed bag of patients with acute kidney injury. It's a multi-center trial in over almost 170 sites. 168 sites were included, uh, and they randomized. So over a five-year period, uh, they randomized almost 3,000 patients. So there was 1,400, uh, uh, 1,465 patients in one arm, and 1,462 patients in the other arm. So now, as Dr. Bankhead just mentioned in her limitations of the other um, uh, or the um, ideal trial you know, the timing of initiation is always a critique. And that was certainly some of the critiques of the older trials as well. And still in this in this um, patient, uh, in this particular trial, the immediate time to dialysis initiation in the early group was seven and a half hours uh, and was a little over 48, 51, uh, 51 hours in the second group, uh, which was the delayed initiation. Now, as far as the inclusion criteria, that's the first thing you always have to ask about a trial is what does this fit my patient population? It was pretty standard um, as far as uh, inclusion criteria. So as any patient with AKI admission to the ICU, they defined AKI um, as a creatinine that hadn't declined within 48 hours. Uh, and they defined severe AKI. Uh, so you have to have a severe AKI, excuse me, with at least one uh, of the following. And that was a two-fold increase in creatinine from the baseline, um, a uh, creatinine um, uh, um, Bay, uh, threshold and as well the urine output uh, of allegory of less, less than six uh, cc's uh, of, of urine per kg per hour. Now, so uh, I mean the graph here, uh, you know, this, I think the survival curves uh, were essentially the same. So there was no difference in 90-day mortality uh, between early and late initiation. Again, you know, this, the numbers are almost identical: 43.9 versus 43.7, and that's um, that's essentially 
a mortality at 90 days. So there's really no difference versus accelerated versus standard renal replacement therapy. Um, two of the secondary outcomes that the, uh, the, the authors looked at, which I think are interesting, and one in particular I hadn't really um, paid attention to as much, was that the, the dependence on renal replacement therapy, though, after 90 days uh, was higher, was significantly higher in that early accelerated group. Uh, and then that the, um, um, the patients in the accelerated group had a shorter length of stay. Well, that, that also kind of makes sense. Uh, um, the adverse events um, were more common in accelerated arm, uh, in particular hypertension and hypophosphatemia, but these serious adverse events uh, were not any significantly different. So, Dr. Bankenkana, what do you think about the limitations of that particular study? Yeah, so again, equipoise is going to be really subjective uh, in any of these studies. Um, and also, there's going to be a lot of variability. Um, among all intensivists, but even as we'll talk about, even here among us three, there's, it's going to really vary a lot. So um, getting good equipoise in any of these studies is going to be really difficult. Um, also for the patients who were excluded, the authors didn't really disclose or report why they were excluded, which I think is important to note. Um, there was more adverse events in the accelerated strategy group, but like the authors pointed out, uh, if you're reporting adverse events in a RRT population and you've got people on RRT longer, it's potentially certainly attributable to that higher number of overall days that they are on RRT. Um, and then, you know, something that I kind of picked out as I was reading really both of these studies is the number of surgical patients uh, that are in these. And I think that's noteworthy because only one third of these patients in this study only one third of them were surgical patients, either scheduled or unscheduled. Um, and a surgical intensivist taking care of mostly, if not entirely, surgical patients, I think that's worth noting because, as we know, our patient population isn't entirely the same as a medical ICU is. And so, how much of this study and data is applicable for us today on Behind the Knife talking about our specific surgical patient population? And I think that's just something to, um, to remember. Those are some really great points. I mean, what do you guys think about, you know, I mean, of course, this last year has been, there have been so many challenges and, you know, of course, in, in an ideal world where you can just pick and choose who can get dialysis and you have all the nurses and all the equipment in the world to deliver um, the therapy, you know, how is this going to change sort of your practice, Dr. Dumas? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, as you just alluded to yourself, you, you have to look at the resources that, you know, are around you. And I definitively remember um, essentially more or less, quote, unquote, you know, limiting dialysis or delaying dialysis in some patients during COVID, where there was literally not enough, you know, renal replacement therapy machines in the hospital, um, because we had so many patients in the COVID ICUs that also had a concomitant renal failure. So um, that being said, you know, I'm fortunate to practice in a um, in a resource rich environment, and I am very aggressive to start dialysis. I think, you know, of all the stuff, all the evidence we have in the critical care literature, you know, volume balance is probably one of the most, um, you know, strong indicators of mortality. And so if I can manage a patient's volume better with dialysis, um, then I'm going to try to do that more aggressively, even though admittedly some of the literature we discovered would argue that it does not affect the patient's outcome. Dr. Bankakandal, are, are, uh, are you liberally dosing like 100 milligrams of Lasix BID for these, <laughs> see if the little kittens are going to work? Oh yeah, I um, I am. I'm I'm a uh, 
quite the opposite of Dr. Dumas. I, I'm a stave off dialysis girl through and through. And I think, um, you know, I think that probably started a little bit in fellowship, just like he was saying, I did my fellowship during COVID and we had to stave off dialysis um, a lot more often than we, than we really wanted to. And so I saw these Lasix challenges work. Um, and uh, certainly not in the population of patients who were worsening clinically, they had to be you know, kind of peaked at their um, clinical improvement. They had to be on their way to getting better in kind of all other systems. Uh, but if, if really the kidneys were your only hang up and they were plus minus on meeting those AEIOUs, I, I wasn't uh, disappointed in how many we could get to turn around and that two to three cc's of urine in the bag became five to seven and 10 to 15. And, you know, they really seemed to pick back up. Um, uh, yeah. So that's so interesting. I, I, so do you think it's picking back up because the patients are getting better and they're just overcoming their sepsis because you're treating with antibiotics or is it really the Lasix that's getting better? Because in my interpretation of the Lasix challenge is that essentially there's a meta-analysis with nine studies and essentially it'll tell you that Lasix challenge doesn't improve hospital mortality. doesn't improve the need for dialysis or the number of dialysis days or sessions um, or the patients who have persistent uh, oliguria. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, probably they're clinically improving and probably it's just giving us some time and buying us some time. Um, but I, I mean, I just, I, I really feel like I've, I've not been doing this very long, but I am a big believer in this. If you're putting them on dialysis, I really feel like I've seen patients not have that renal recovery, like they said in this paper, um, and so I, I don't think I'll be changing my practice based on this, um, and starting it earlier because it didn't show a decreased mortality. None of the secondary outcomes showed that doing it earlier was really all that more favorable either. Um, and although quality of life, you know, they looked at quality of life, which I think is important. So although that was reported as the same, I don't think that lack of renal recovery in the long term is to be undermined. Um, and I know that personally, I'd trade an extra ICU day for my own renal recovery. Yeah, that's day. a great point. Dr. Park, you know, that, that was something honestly that, you know, I, I've heard about, but I wasn't, I had certainly never seen it in a trial like this. You know, that trial specifically says that, you know, there's an increased need for renal replacement therapy and accelerated arm at 90 days. Does that make you take pause and maybe consider pumping the brakes on the early dialysis? I, I think it's really the whole picture, um, you know, and I, it really depends on the sort of relationship that you have with the nephrologist, or if, if you're writing for your own CRT, of course, you have your own control of when you start dialysis or not. Um, but yes, you know, when I have a patient on dual pressors, who's acidotic and, um, you know, I just feel like I'm not making much headway, I'm, I'm going to be much more aggressive with, with dialysis. And if there isn't um, a, an increased harm necessarily, we, we reviewed some of the adverse events, but none that are like that significant clinically, I might be pushing the envelope and heading towards dialysis. Dr. Banker Kendall, how do you administer your Lasix challenge? Because I think that's something that in my practice is very variable. And to be quite frank, I think sometimes we don't push it maybe hard enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, my first question is always, is the patient Lasix naive, which is a silly question, but, uh, it's really important because sometimes uh, tenolasix goes a whole lot longer of a way than our uh, residents really remember or recall. And if their creatinine is super, super high, then appropriately, I will give 60, 80, 100, 120 without blinking an eye because they're going to need it. 
Um, if they respond, that's great. If they don't respond, um, and I still am not seeing any of those really good AEIOUs with a really hard indication of starting dialysis and feeling like I can really turn the corner in the next 48 hours with them. Um, and they're kind of this subacute, lingering, smoldering renal failure, then I'm going to try Bumex and I'm going to hit them with Bumex and then start them on a drip and see if I can get them to start that way too. Um, yeah. But for those, those like real AEOUs, if they are really significant or if I'm really having ventilator problems or they're really acidotic, then for sure I'm going to uh, dilates my patients. I don't want that to be misconstrued. <laughs> Dr. Park, how do you, how do you dose your Lasix? I, I actually do approach it the same way, naive or not. And then, um, I don't really look at their BUN and creatinine so much, but, um, if the patient is not Lasix naive, I will tend to just go big. Um, and I will just go for 60, 80, hundred. Um, because I, I personally, I think that, you know, it either works or doesn't, I, I don't think that Lasix really hurts. Um, so if, if it works great, then I know that I can continue on this path. If it doesn't, then I know that I may have to consider other things. I, I don't necessarily, I feel like if the Lasix bolus doesn't really work, Bumex probably won't work in my experience, but, um, something certainly worth considering. Yeah. I once had a MICU intensivist tell me that his rule of thumb was 40 times the credit. And I think that's, you know, not a bad number to hang your hat on and, or in a Lasix naive person, 1.5 times, you know, uh, they're, uh, 1.5 makes per kid. Um, so. Great. Well, this has been a really great discussion. Obviously, if you asked three intensivists, you might get three different answers on when to initiate dialysis. So I think our take home points for today, um, you know, early initiation of renal replacement therapy actually may not improve mortality. So be mindful of who your patients are, um, what the indications are and be able to sort of understand the mortality, um, for those two different cohorts. Um, and then watchful waiting, we've kind of already talked about that. What are sort of medical management strategies for these patients, keeping in mind what you have for resources, right? You may not even have CRT available in your institution it might be more HD or your nursing ratio may not allow for it. So think about what you have, um, and also, you know, what your patients really need before considering, um, we don't replace some therapy. I think it's all we got for, for you guys from behind the knife, um, the surgical critical care team. Um, we look forward to um, working with you guys in the future. And I guess we'll just dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.